All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and we are continuing in our series in Acts. So grab your Bibles, and let's go to Acts chapter 9. That's page 918 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, look on the floor around you. We haven't distributed around the room. Go ahead and grab one of those black Bibles and go to page uh, 918. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would be glad for you to go ahead and take that one home with you. Uh, if that could be our gift to you to help you to engage the Scripture, it would be our honor uh, to do that. All right, while you're flipping over there, I just want to remind you, we will have a baptism between services. I'm going to mention it again at the end, but would love for you to stick around. Um, these are huge celebrations. These, I love baptisms, and, uh, and I love it when the community gets to get together and celebrate um, faith in Christ. And so stick around for that. Uh, the next thing I want to mention before we dig in... Um, College students, I think you have a big week coming up, right? Am I right? Yeah. Um, finals week is here. We have any seniors here? Yeah, we got a couple. Uh, congrats. All right. See you later. <laughs> um, I want to say congratulations to you all. Um, getting to the end of a school year is always an accomplishment, and right now I know is a time of both eager joy and probably dread um, as you're looking forward to your final week, final papers due, and the rest of that. So I'd like to pray for you guys. Um, so here's the deal. If you're a college student and, uh, and you want to stand up to receive this prayer, you can. You don't have to. If, you want, if you're a college student and you want to sit down and receive it, you can still receive it there. Um, but, uh, but I do want to pray over you guys. And so um, go ahead and stand up if, if you'd like to. Um, I would love it if you would. You don't have to. Yeah, well, let's everyone else see this, this pocket right here and over here. All right. Um, everyone else, let's, let's pray together um, as I pray over these guys, okay? Lord, we thank you for these students and ask you to bless them as they head into their finals. Uh, many of them are walking under the burden of anxiety and pressure. Many of them are exhausted and distracted. Uh, many of them are so full of hope for the future they can't focus on the here and now. Many are struggling with fear and anxiety. Spirit, we pray that you will meet them, that you will comfort them, that you will strengthen them, that you will encourage them. Help them to remember the things that they've studied. Help them to remember some things they haven't, but should have. Help them to work from gratitude and joy, knowing their greatest test has already been passed. That they've already passed their biggest exam because Jesus died and rose again. They've already won. They've already passed. They've already been approved. So help them to relax and do their best. Help them to succeed but not be defined by their success or the lack of it. Help them to rest in your success, not theirs. We ask for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. All right, let's take a look at Acts chapter 9. We're starting in verse 32 and going through the end of the chapter. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read through. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. 
In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Thank you. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. All right, um, so we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Tabitha this week. Um, and, and I'm going to just, I'm going to throw it out there. I was studying this passage and um, have been wrestling all week and, and kind of yielded this morning. Um, I had a good friend killed in a car accident on Wednesday. Um, His name was uh, Dr. Donald Patton, and I knew him as Donnie. All right, sorry. This is why I didn't want to bring it up, but his shadow was over my study and over my notes all week, and and, and I couldn't get away from it, talking about the resurrection of of Tabitha. Um, And so I'm just, I'm just going to, we're going to, we're going to lay it out there, okay? Um, I was going to talk about him indirectly anyway, so we might as well just get it out there. Um, so Donnie is the one on the right there. Uh, this is his wedding. Um, the fella on, on my left is Gar. He passed away 10 years ago. Uh, those were two of my closest friends. Sorry. All right. So Donnie was my first Christian friend. Uh, I met Donnie when I was 17 years old. I went to Emmaus Bible College as an unbeliever and arrived there, and, um, and we were total goofballs. Um, that's really <laughs> how we connected. He was a sheltered Iowa farm boy. I was a California skater, and, uh, and we became friends. And, uh, and we kind of grew up together. We were in each other's weddings, and... Uh, worked together at the same school for a season, and, uh, and so we were close. As we grew up, we both stayed in education. He was a professor at SLU. He was uh, a professor of church history, and uh, on Wednesday, he was killed on Highway 44. He was in a minor fender bender, got out, checked on the other driver, got back into his car, was waiting for emergency personnel, and then they were rammed by a third car. And uh, and he was killed. Um, He left behind a wife and two teenage children, his parents, his sister, and his brother. All right, so this week, as I'm studying the resurrection of Tabitha, this is what's happening, and this is what I'm sitting in. 
And so there's no doubt this event informed my study and my thinking, and, um, and I knew it was going to come out. And so I just wanted to kind of own it. Um, I, I in no way uh, want it to be manipulative. I hate crying in front of people. Anybody who knows me knows that. Um, but it was going to happen. And so here's the thing. As I was studying the resurrection of Tabitha, there are um, three things that kind of became very clear to me in this text. First is that death sucks. It just does. Uh, It is not the way life is supposed to be. There is, at the heart of the human existence, a betrayal, a deep betrayal. And if you don't know God, you're going to ultimately think it's God's betrayal of us, but the reality is it's our betrayal of Him. And when we finally meet that betrayal... It robs us of all of our joy and all of our hope and all of our future, unless it's redeemed in Christ. And that's the second thing we see in this text, is that death doesn't have the last word. That God broke into our betrayal to redeem us from it and restore us to hope. And the third is that because of the resurrection, we need to reevaluate what we think is valuable in life. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. First, I want to take a look at the text, okay? Uh, the passage itself seems to be leading us somewhere. When, uh, when, when you read through this passage, it, it begins with Peter kind of going here and there, which is really an odd. Like, he's just going here and there, you know? He's just hanging out. And, and, and as he's going here and there, he just happens to go to Lydda, right? And, um, and the passage seems to be almost prelude to something else. And, and here's the thing, it kind of is, because next week we're going to get into the next chapter where, where, where God is kind of subtly moving Peter towards Caesarea. Caesarea is a, a, a coastal town to the northwest of Jerusalem, and, and a very critical event is going to happen there. In fact, it's one of the, one of the most important events in the early church. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at that next week. And so this week we're looking at him kind of going here and there, and, and it really is God kind of moving him uh, in this direction toward this great revelation. And, and while he's doing that first, he goes to Lydda, and, and there he comes across, across a disciple um, named Aeneas who's been paralyzed for eight years. And uh, <laughs> Peter says, get up, dude. Pick up your bed, right? I mean, it's very reminiscent of an event with Jesus, um, where Jesus did something very, very similar. Um, obviously the difference is we see Jesus acting in his own authority and Peter speaking from the authority of Christ, right? He says, in the name of Christ, right? Is he speaking from the resurrection power of Christ, um, not from his own authority? But we see a very similar demonstration of power. And uh, and so Aeneas um, gets up, right? (laughs) He rolls up his bed. and, And it says, everybody in Lydda and Sharon, which are the surrounding areas, were amazed, they were amazed. The, the news of this got out. People knew this guy, and, and when they saw him walking around, they're like, holy cow, there's something here, right? And that was kind of the, that we're going to see throughout Acts. That's the purpose of these dramatic signs. They're not ends in and of themselves, right? And it's great that Aeneas got healed, but that's not the point, right? It is the point in the sense that Aeneas got to get up and walk, and I'm sure he was incredibly grateful for that. But what it did is, is it, it drove home into Aeneas's heart the glory and the power of God, and it drove home into the community, the glory and the power of God. It, 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 it came alongside as a witness to the message. 
right? These guys are talking about the resurrection of Christ, and then as they act in power, those acts of power reinforce the authority of their message. And so we see the gospel moving out through this process. While he is, while Peter is in Lydda, uh, a couple guys come and knock on his door. Uh, They're from a town about a day's journey away called Joppa. They had heard that Peter was there. And they said, hey, uh, we have we have a woman who died. Will you come? There's no specific request other than, will you come, right? Will you, will you follow us? And so Peter follows them, and, uh, and he, he visits, and, and as he's there, the people that are there um, talk about her, Tabitha. And uh, he visits her body. He gets everybody out of the room. He bends down next to the body. He prays and, uh, and tells her to get up she gets up. He reaches out his hand, uh, helps her out of the bed, and restores her to the community. As a result, many people in that town, again, became believers in Christ. They saw the power, it reinforced the message, right? So it was a blessing to Tabitha. Obviously, she got to continue living. It was a blessing to the community. They wanted her to continue living. But the heart of the miracle was not primarily for Tabitha. The heart of the miracle was primarily to reinforce that that Peter was, in fact, speaking with the authority of God. And as people saw that, um, they they believed. All right, there are obviously some, some pretty flashy things going on in this passage, right? When you, when you see lame people, people that were lame for eight years getting up and walking, that's kind of a big deal. When you see someone who's dead getting up and walking, that's kind of flashy, right? That, that, that's one of those things that kind of gets your attention. It's kind of a big deal. But there are a number of subtle details in this story that I think are worth paying attention to. Because I think Luke is, while he's telling us these stories, um, provoking us to ask some questions, that a quick reading of this text would, would miss. And so I want to point some of those out to you. Right, first of all, in verse 36, her name. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Thanks, that was helpful, <laughs> right? I didn't know what Tabitha meant. Now I know it means Dorcas. Sweet! Um, well, what's going on here is, is in Aramaic um, and in Greek. He's saying in Aramaic, her name is Tabitha, which means gazelle. And in Greek, her name is Dorcas, which means gazelle. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> there is, in fact, a Dorcas gazelle. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's reinforcing that, that she is named after this, this very graceful creature, right? A gazelle. I mean, when we think about a gazelle, you're thinking about a creature that, that has incredible strength, but we're not, gazelles aren't known for their strength. They're known for their grace, right? They're known for for the, the, not just that they can move quickly or, or fast, or, but they can move gracefully and beautifully, right? So he obviously thought that was important. He wanted to drive that home. Her name is, is Tabitha and Dorcas, right? Uh, and they both mean gazelle. He immediately follows that up with a summary statement of her reputation, right? If you look at the end of verse 36, she was full of good works and acts of charity. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Um, she is known for what she's full of. 
Um, here's the thing. Whatever you're full of is going to leak. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, it tends to leak in pressure situations. It tends to leak when things aren't exactly the way you want them to be. It tends to leak in the moments that you're not um, fully on guard. She's full of good works. So it's not just that she did some good works. She's full of good works. When she was under pressure and when others were under pressure, she bled good works. She was full of charity, um, which is a, 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 a love, right? She just, she just leaked love. Um, this, this love for the undeserving. This, this love that's not based on, on her uh, estimation of your value. She just leaked it, man. So when she was put under pressure, she was full of good works. Um, and we see that uh, in verse 39. When you look at verse 39, it says, So Peter went with them and arrived, and they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Um, when he arrives, the widows are, are just in the room weeping. We don't know if Dorcas is a widow. We don't know if she's single. We know that there's no mention of a family. There's no husband here. There's no kids. Uh, so it's possible that, that she was a younger widow um, or an older widow whose kids had moved on. It's also possible that, that she was unmarried. Um, we don't know uh, exactly, um, but, the, but we do learn something in the tears of the widows, right? This tells us something very important about Tabitha. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes kind of, the, it was kind of an end-time scenario when people come before him, and, um, and, and, and he says to them, when I was hungry, you gave me food, and, and when I was thirsty, you gave me drink, and, and when I was... When I was exposed, you gave me shelter. And they said, Lord, when did we do these things? When, when did we give you food? When did we give you drink? When, when did we give you shelter? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And he was revealing something very, very important about the kingdom. What he was saying was, at the heart of the kingdom of God is not the advancement of the world, but love. Right? It's not about building a kingdom for yourself, your own glory, your own comfort, your own future. It's about loving. It's about caring, and, and that is most clearly and powerfully displayed in how we treat the least of these, not the most of these, right? It's not measured in how you treat people you like. It's not measured in, in how you treat people you value. It's not measured in how you treat people who treat you well. It's, it's measured in how you treat the least of these, those who have the least ability to repay you, the least ability to do anything for you, the least ability to, to, to say even thank you or to give you any social status for your sacrifice, right? So when we see the widows gathered around Dorcas, Tabitha, and weeping, what we're seeing is that she cared for the least of these. Because in that culture... Women didn't have authority or voice. Um, when they lost their husbands, they became vulnerable and dependent. And if they lost their husbands and their children, they were really almost in a dangerous place. They had no legal authority. They had no social clout. And yet we see the least of these gathered around her and weeping. Their tears tell us that Tabitha cared for the least of these, the very people Jesus told us to value. And then as they're weeping, they, they show Peter their tunics. And they say, she made these for us. These are important to us because she made these for us. 
As I dug into this passage, something very interesting, the word for tunic here is a unique word. It doesn't speak of the outer tunic, the one that was often colorful or, you know, uh, brand name, right? It, it, it talked about the inner tunic, the under tunic, the one that was close to the skin, the one that people didn't see but brought you comfort. It was the tunic that wasn't flashy, the tunic that, that wasn't apparent, but it was the tunic that brought comfort. She made the widow's under tunics, these, these tunics that were, were close to them and protected them and comforted them and warmed them. And then the final thing that's really interesting is they laid her in the upper room. Not typical. You don't, in this culture and in this time, um, you, you don't take a corpse and carry it upstairs. <laughs> you just don't. That, that's not the, the normal procedure. Um, during this period of time, the body would have been prepared for, um, for burial and, and um, really buried fairly quickly because they didn't have any way to preserve bodies. They didn't have any way to prevent or, or delay decay. It's really unusual that they carried her to an upper room. Um, and then they sent two men to find Peter. All right, so there's some things that we can take away from this. Um, first, Tabitha was loved by her community. There's no doubt about it, right? She wasn't just loved by the widows. The fact that the men, the leaders of the community, took it upon themselves to travel a day's journey to go find Peter tells us that she was valued not just by the least, but by those with political clout and, and social presence. She was valued by everybody in the community. Um, that she wasn't just named after a graceful creature, she was, in fact, graceful, and I mean that in the sense of being full of grace, right? I don't think we're reading too much into the passage to, to see her as somebody who simply was a blessing to the people around her, that, that she was the presence of the grace of God, and as a result, people wanted to be near her. People wanted her in their lives. Her works weren't the flashy kind, Right? She, she didn't move in the spirit like Peter did, raising people from the dead and, and, and healing the lame and, and, and being a public and, and, and very uh, present source of power, but she did move in the spirit. She didn't move in the spirit like Peter did, but she moved in the power of the spirit nonetheless. And what she did was no less miraculous and no less glorious. I think it's really telling that, I mean, that really was what grabbed my heart. She made these tunics, right? They were hidden. They weren't seen. They weren't flashy. No one even knew they were there. Each one was custom made for the wearer. People didn't even know they were there except the people she gave them to. See, when you look at the powerful works of, of Tabitha, that's where you find them. Not in the raising of the dead, not on the healing of the lame, but the hidden acts of grace that brought people comfort and encouragement. Being the presence of the grace of God for people who were the least of these and being the presence of the grace of God for those who had power and political clout. It was, it was whoever was near, right? The fact that they laid her out in the upper room 
even though it's not spelled out in the passage, tells me they were asking God for something miraculous. When she died, they were like, not her. Not her. They didn't move her closer to the ground. They moved her closer to God. And when they heard that Peter was near, they're like, go get Peter. If God's going to do it, maybe God will do it through him. So the leaders went and called him personally. And as we know, Peter came. Peter responded. The Spirit led Peter to respond and to follow, and he arrived. And after seeing and assessing the situation, he empties the room. And he speaks directly to the body. Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, anastemi. Greek word, anastemi, rise. Same word used throughout the New Testament to describe the resurrection of Jesus. Like Christ rose. Because Christ rose. Tabitha, arise. Now the key difference is that it wasn't permanent. (laughs) This was not a permanent reprieve of death. Tabitha is not somewhere hiding on earth, um, living in eternal life, waiting for Jesus to come back, right? Um, She died again. This was a temporary reprieve of death. Um, Like Lazarus, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Tabitha would die again. This was temporary. It was not the permanent resurrection like Christ. But as an act of grace to this community... God gave her back for a season. It's remarkable that a community would value her so much, that they would go to such lengths to ask for a miracle. And it is remarkable that God responded. Listened to their prayers and gave her back. So what do we take away from this? As we look at this story, what, what are the things that, that we can learn from this? Because obviously there's, it's one thing to dig into the historical account and try to really get a sense for what happened and what Luke is trying to get us to take away from it. It's another thing to say, okay, <laughs> how does that apply to us um, these many, many years later in, in a very different context and a different culture? Well, first of all, I think it's pretty obvious that death is our enemy. <clears throat> we see that apparent in the story. We see it apparent in our lives. Death is our enemy. Death is a violation of the way things ought to be. There is never a good death. Because death was never meant to be part of the story. It is a violation. It is an intrusion. When death visits... We should mourn. If you're a believer and you've suffered loss, you need to hear this. Death is an unwelcome intruder. And when death visits, we should and must grieve. Now, Scripture says that we don't grieve like unbelievers, that we have hope in our grief. And that is very true. But don't let that truth rob you of your grief. 
We don't mourn like unbelievers, but we still mourn. This is not the way it is supposed to be. And we glorify God when we sit in our sorrow. And we simply admit this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the world you designed for us. This is the world we've inherited that is a mix of both glory and ruin. A mix of your presence and of our betrayal. It promises and it awakens within us appetites for the eternal. And it betrays us by robbing us of the very presence of life. This is not the way it's supposed to be. See, the community at Joppa, the leaders, the widows, they knew it. They knew it. And as they laid Dorcas out, they were full of faith, but they were also full of sorrow. Listen to me. When you suffer, you shouldn't be in a rush to fix the pain. Everything in you wants to. And there are even some who will come with their hyper-spirituality, which isn't spirituality, and tell you that you should just move on. They come with their hyper-spiritualized answers and try to fix what cannot be fixed. See, when someone shows up, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But you know what? At least Jesus rose from the dead. At least we have hope. At least we, you know what? It's, it's okay. We're going to see him again. Those are true statements, but a lot of times those statements are made not to bring comfort, but to end suffering. When we jump straight to the hyper-spiritualized response of resurrection without entering into the deep emotional pain of loss, that is not a sign of maturity. That is, on the other hand, often our way of avoiding pain and trying to use our theology to avoid the necessary process of mourning. It is not a sign of strength, but of emotional immaturity. Don't try to fix the sorrow. Sit in it. Look at it, experience it, and mourn it. We honor God as we look at what is broken and see it broken. We honor God when we see the, the, the absence of His glory and mourn its absence. That's not weakness, that's not immaturity. His strength. Because in order to mourn well, we have to do it with hope. You cannot mourn well unless you have hope. See, death, our enemy, has already lost. Death is not final. When Jesus rose from the dead, 
He put to death, death. <laughs> he made sure it didn't have the final word. He, he went where all of us will go. And he came back. When he rose from the dead, he opened a door on the other side of death back into life. When he rose from the dead, he didn't die again. He didn't rise again simply to perish all over. He was born the firstborn of a new creation. The first member of a new kingdom as the forerunner of a new humanity. And it's as we embrace that hope that we can mourn well because we can enter the pain knowing that it is not the final word. It's from that resurrection that we grow in hope for our own. If we are believers in Christ, we will rise to that same hope. You guys listen, death still bites. But its poison has been removed. It hurts, but it cannot destroy. Tabitha died. And ironically, Tabitha died again. But she will also rise again. Her resurrection in this story is a brief reprieve but it is a foretaste of the final promise. It's a hint of what will come. That what has been broken will be healed. That what has been lost will be restored. That the great betrayal at the heart of the universe is not God's betrayal of us, but our betrayal of Him. And he entered into that betrayal, suffered its consequences, died in our place and rose again. That we might enter into that great reversal. Tabitha died and will rise again. Donnie died. Then he will rise again. And that leads me to my final point. If death is defeated, if we will rise again, we need to redefine our understanding of success. This should reform what we find truly and lastingly valuable. I've been reflecting on this a lot this week. Um, it's been kind of forced on me. How God works, what life means. See, death will, will do that. Um, there we go. That's my signal. Um, and like usual, I'll just ignore it. Um, life's fragile, you guys. Life's fragile. We forget it, though. In fact, we do our best to ignore it. But when the glass is shattered right next to you, you have no choice but to acknowledge it and to recognize that what I don't want to pay attention to every single day is an under, underlying reality. Death is our last enemy, and every single one of us will die. Can we just admit that? Every person in this room will die. I will die. Gar's dead. Donnie is dead. I'm going to go too. I don't know when. I don't know how. Gar died from a sudden and massive heart attack. 
Donnie died from a random, stupid car accident. This week, I have found myself walking down the street, paying attention over my shoulder constantly, watching cars, paying attention to where light posts were in case one was driving out of control, I could get behind something solid. But it's going to get me. I will die. It's inevitable. And when you realize that, it puts things in perspective. It changes what you think of as valuable. When Donnie and I were, were met, man, 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 we were kids. I was 17. He was 18. We were kids who were becoming men. <laughs> we, were, we were drunk on our youth, you know, studying together, laughing at each other. <laughs> he would date somebody and it wouldn't go well and I would laugh at him. Uh, I would date somebody it wouldn't go well. He would laugh at me. We would dream about the future. So we just stumbled along. And I was there and Donnie was there. I was there when Donnie met and married a beautiful young woman named Sherry and he was there when I met and married a beautiful young woman named Lauren. He had two incredible kids. He got his doctorate, and he literally taught around the world. But you want to know what Donnie's true greatness was? It wasn't his PhD. And the people closest to him will tell you. It was his faith in God and his love for people. It's that simple. It was his faith in God and his love for people. You want to know what was truly valuable about his life. You want to know what's actually going to last. It was his legacy of his faith in God and how that impacted people and his love for people. That's what's going to last. Now, he spent a lot of time building and working on a lot of other things like all of us do. His, his financial security, his home, his polishing up his car, you know, whatever it was. But you know what's going to last? The legacy of his faith in God and his love for people. It's that simple. And that's the challenge that I think we see in Tabitha. Tabitha is this unknown woman in an unheard of town. God raised her from the dead. God honored her life and her community's faith. And we should pay attention to that. And as I look at her life, I'm going to push a little bit farther into conjecture here. There are things that we kind of have to read into the text to maybe figure out, and I may be wrong on some of this. I don't know. I don't think I'm pushing too far. But I think when Tabitha saw people, she actually saw people. Like when she looked at somebody, she saw them. There was a quietness and a stillness in her spirit. There was a, a presence with her. She didn't look at somebody and see through them. She wasn't looking at them and thinking about where they would be or how they could help her or what was going to happen next. She wasn't living next week now. She wasn't living for next year now. She was here. When she saw people, she saw them. When she looked into their eyes, there was probably something a little bit disorienting and startling in that moment because she wasn't distracted 
by her plans for the future, or by her phone, or, or what she was going to do to entertain herself over the weekend, or, or how she was going to make herself famous or great. She was in that moment fully present. She didn't just make tunics to comfort people's bodies. Her presence was grace. And when people were around her, she, she was there. And they felt loved. They felt known. I'm guessing when people were with her, they didn't feel like she was rushed. Too important or too busy to listen. Distracted by her great plans and her great future. And when she was with them, when she looked in their eyes and saw them, and when she listened to them, she clothed them with dignity, with comfort. She saw their woundedness She saw their hurt and she saw their glory. And she saw them through the eyes of the resurrection of Christ. She didn't see who they were. She saw who God was making them to be. And in seeing that, she called that out in them. She put the hidden garments of the dignity of Christ over those that she was near through her presence and through her words. She saw them, their beauty, their pain, their need, their ugliness. You guys, there's a difference between analyzing people and seeing people. One is pride. And one is love. See, when we analyze people, we are standing in the position of pride. We look at people and we think we can diagnose them. We can define them. We mark the boundaries of their ruin and we mark the boundaries of their glory. And from a position of pride, we then move into the posture of advice. Let me tell you how to fix yourself. Let me tell you how to fix your problems. Let me tell you how to fix your woundedness. And in our strength, we are weak. And in our pride, we are wounding and dehumanizing. We may give good advice. And in so doing, heap shame on the heads of our hearers. As we simply look at them and say, you should be more like me. When I analyze, I stand apart and evaluate your need and your value and I determine your worth. And that leads me to very quietly judge people. Man, it's so subtle and so insidious. just very, very quietly without even noticing. Place ourselves on a higher plane than those who are the least of these. 
Because we don't see ourselves as the least of these. We don't count ourselves among the refuse of humanity. We don't see ourselves as those of people of great need. And so we analyze instead of see. And as you quietly judge people and give them advice on how to fix themselves, you quietly dehumanize them and rob them of their dignity. Listen to me. Tabitha saw these broken women and honored their pain and clothed them with dignity. She was a blessing to those that she was near. She saw them and she served them. She noticed their glory and she saw their hurt. And she gave and she served and she spoke. Not so she would be noticed, not so she would be thanked, not to build herself a platform, not so that she would have glory, but so that they would be blessed. She reminded them of their dignity in Christ. She reminded them of their future and their hope. She reminded them that they were clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, that they were not defined by what they had done or who they were or what had been done to them. They were defined by the resurrection of Jesus. And in reminding people of their glory in Christ, she called out of them the transformation that no advice could ever achieve. And they loved her for it. This is success. Listen to me, this is success. I don't know what you're chasing. I know what my heart wants to chase. I know the platform I want. I want the glory. I want the comfort. I want the prestige. There there are so many things I am ambitious and I am wired to achieve and there are things that I want to chase. And it's in moments like this when I am exposed in my own nakedness, exposed in my own naked ambition, that I am humbled and called again to the kingdom of Christ instead of the kingdom of Steve. And I want to call you to the humility of the gospel and to the beauty of grace. This is what lasts. This is what's valuable. When we get into the kingdom of Christ, it's not going to matter how many people praised your name, how big your house was, what your 401k was, what your performance valuation said, how many people followed you on Twitter, how many people liked your post on Facebook, what's going to matter is how well you reflected the glory of Christ by loving the least of these. We're impressed by Peter's works and the power. We're we're impressed by Paul's incredible risk-taking faith, and we should be. And there's a place for the ambitious, and there is a place for, for a holy discontent that causes us to tear down what needs to be torn down and build what needs to be built. But as you read the writings of these great forefathers of our faith, Peter and Paul, they weren't deceived by the things they accomplished. Their greatness wasn't measured in what they built or what they did. Their greatness was measured by exactly what Tabitha was measured by. Love. How well they were loved and how well they did love. It's not a measure of how many people you fix, but in how many people are clothed with dignity because they are simply near you. 
listen to me, that can only happen if you open yourself up to be loved. Some of you may be feeling condemned right now. You may be hearing me say, you should fix this. You should do better. You should get better at loving people. And if you're hearing me say that, you're hearing me a little bit wrong. What I'm saying is you should be so deeply loved by God that you are free to set down your pretending and your performing, to walk away from your self-glory and to allow your ambition, your definition of success to be redefined by the resurrection of Christ. What I'm laying in front of you is freedom, not guilt. To love well, you must be loved well. You must open up in humility and brokenness and allow God into the dark places of your soul. The unconditional acceptance of Christ, the dignity of His presence to free you from your brokenness, to free you from your slavery to your self-glory, to free you into love. Because He loves you. And when you believe in Christ, everything that is wrong about you, all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, is no longer yours. It's His. And He left it on the cross. What's in front of you is an invitation to grace. To be clothed in the resurrection, beauty, and glory of Christ. Will you rest in that today? Will you stop striving to build what he's already built, to gain what he's already given? Will you just rest in his love for you? And in that place of being loved, will you find the contentment and the rest to be able to simply look at others and love them without the need to fix them or change them? There is no higher calling in this life than to love. And as you learn to love the least of these, you are becoming more like Jesus, the one who loved us. The least of these. All right. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. I'm going to pray for us, let God just speak to our hearts. Um, we're going to have a baptism between services. I want to remind you to stick around for that. I also want to extend an invitation. If you are a believer in Christ, even if you became a believer this morning and you have not been baptized, if you have not been dunked, um, man, the water's right here. Okay, the invitation is in front of you this morning. If you're a believer in Christ, there is nothing standing between you and your obedience to Christ. Jesus said, man, believe and be baptized, <laughs> right? In that order and in that quickly, <laughs> right? Um, and so the invitation is in front of you. We, we've got you covered. We've got clothes for you. We've got towels for you. We've got, you know, you might lose a little bit of, of makeup. You, you might leave with your hair a little bit messy. But, um, man, this is your opportunity to obey the Savior who saved you. So if you want to be baptized this morning, if you have questions about it, we're going to have leaders over by the door um, during our response time. Just go speak to them, and they'll help you figure out if baptism is uh, the correct step for you at this time to honor Christ and to uh, move in obedience to Him. Okay, Let me pray for us, and um, 
We'll go into our time of response. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that even though it is our betrayal that has introduced death into the world, and even though we often point our finger at you and blame you for the consequences of our own actions, look at you and saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to be and it's your fault. Man, you don't, you don't get ticked at us. You, you don't get offended by us. You don't rise up in pride against us. You love us. You invite us. Man, I just don't understand a love like that. The author of life entering death. The creator so loving us that he not only becomes one of his own creatures but then dies under the weight of their rebellion. I... Lord, I pray that you'll wake our hearts up to that love. You will not allow us to simply be religious, to go through the motions, to move through this life as if we weren't going to die, as if this really weren't the nature of this life. Man, help us to embrace the reality of this time, that the time we have is precious, that it is temporary, and that our greatest problem has already been solved and our greatest blessing has already been given in Christ. Give us both the mourning, the allow us to enter into the, the suffering that comes with this age, but also allow us to move with the hope and the confidence and the faith that comes in knowing that you have gone before us and that we are safe in your hands. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.